0: I want to speak to you this morning from uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. I've entitled my sermon, Being Content in an Anxious World. One commentator wrote of Philippians saying it is one of the most cheerful and attractive books in the whole word of God. And it's also extremely practical. Have you noticed the book of Philippians as being a very practical book? And especially so in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Here Paul is providing Christians with the means to live without worry and anxiety. Without worry and anxiety. No Canadian generation has had more anxiety than this generation. No generation has ever had better social support even in the midst of all that anxiety. No generation as a whole has been better off. No generation has had so many machines or appliances designed to ease our daily duties of life. No generation ever enjoyed better health or or life than we do in this generation. Our life expectancy is even rising. Yet worry and anxiety have increased to such a degree. Secular psychology, Counselors have coined a phrase such, just as our social problem would suggest, calling it an anxiety disorder. Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit moved Paul to identify worry and anxiety as very present in the congregation of believers in Philippi at the time of his writing this letter. A letter of joy to a church full of anxiety and worry. And so it should fit for you and for i and me at this time, and it's important that we approach it in that way. The Bible speaks of contentment not only as a virtue, but also of a command. Paul does that as he gives us this great weapon it is for anxiety. The weapon he is laying out before us, I believe in this context of this passage, is contentment contentment is the tool that we must use to overcome worry and anxiety and uh, and the virtue it's a virtue and it's a command nowhere is it else has it seen so strong been so strongly stated as it is here in Paul in Paul's closing comments to the Philippian church he has just told them never to surrender to anxiety. And in verse four sixteen he says that. He says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing in Philippians 4, 6. And then went on to illustrate how with a glimpse from his own life. It's a testimony of, of his own life being poured out before us even this morning. And so in the context of this inspired letter, it is clear that Paul knew what it was to be content even in, in dire circumstances, even in difficult circumstances. There may be people here who are going through very difficult circumstances today. There may be people here who are just full of worry and anxiety. There may be people here who have struggled with it all their lives. And it may be people here who do have contentment from time to time, but all of a sudden it vanishes and have no understanding of how we might uh, retool ourselves and be content. And so uh, we want to look in the context of this inspired letter and see how Paul suggests we can overcome anxiety and worry. So in this context, it's clear that Paul knew knew about difficult circumstances. Remember, he had had this understanding because of his own life in which which he lived. At the time of this writing, Paul was a prisoner under house arrest in Rome, probably around 60 or 61. Under 24-7 watch, he was chained uh, between soldiers and uh, shackled, and uh, he had Little, a little, little, uh, little life uh, of freedom, and he was considered to be uh, even in that kind of a situation. Uh, he had contentment. He had contentment. Chained to two soldiers, and uh, was w- waiting on people to give him help as he would get it from uh, the churches he had founded. In particular, this church in Philippi, he had. He had contentment. He wrote of this when he said, when he wrote about the peace of God in verse 7 and the God of, of peace in verse 9. So, right away, we see that he understood how to live in peace, even from this letter in the early passages then they, 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 they are, they're hard to understand unless we couch them in the whole letter. But for today, let me just say that he, uh, he understood the benefit of contentment because he even wrote about peace and lived in peace, and we can see that he was a man of peace and he, understand, he understood what it was to live above these conditions. The Greek word translated content means to be self-sufficient. It means to be self-sufficient. It means to be satisfied it means to have enough it indicates a certain independence and lack of need for help sometimes contentment referred to a person who supported himself or herself without anyone's aid without anyone's aid paul was saying i've learned to be sufficient in myself in myself however he would be quick to add, not in myself as myself, but as indwelt by Christ, as indwelt by Christ. He elsewhere expressed the subtle distinction as being in Christ in Galatians 2.20. You know Galatians 2.20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. That was Paul. Christ and contentment go together. Christ and contentment are one. Christ is important if we're ever going to have contentment. We can't have contentment without Christ. So if you're here today and don't have Christ, you'll never know the contentment that Christ would have you enjoy. You'll never know it. You'll never know it. You'll have a a fake. You'll have a bit of something the world offers, but not what Christ can offer. Not the contentment of Christ. The Stoic philosophers of Paul's day had a different view of contentment. They believed contentment was achieved only when one came to the point of total indifference. Total indifference. They worked at developing an I-don't-care attitude about everything. Do you get that? They always wanted to pretend they didn't care. No matter what happened in their life, they trained their minds to declare aloud or silently to themselves, I don't care. They're grieving over some loss, and when they would say to themselves, either verbally or silently, I don't care. Something bothered them, I don't care. They, They were suffering in any way. They tried not to be in touch with their emotions. They shut out their emotions. But that's not the kind of contentment Paul was talking about when he used the word here. He was referring to something very different, something very different. It obviously was not indifference. It wasn't indifference. For Paul was an intensely compassionate man. His love letters to the churches throughout the New Testament make it clear just how compassionate a man Paul was. It's important that we notice that Paul said, I have learned to be content in verse 11. And then in verse 12, I have learned the secret, meaning that he had to learn this over time. In the midst of all his trials, he kept his focus on heavenly realities. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 17, the apostle wrote this, For a momentary light affliction is produced for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Did you get that? Paul found encouragement and refreshment during his sufferings by assessing them to be light and only momentarily. They're only temporal. In other words, to be relatively insignificant by comparison to the eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Eternity has something more for us. The difficulties of this life are minor when compared to the wonder of eternal salvation. they they do not even even measure in any way and with that perspective is it any wonder that no amount of pain no amount of suffering or disappointment could affect his contentment nothing could affect it how did Paul have contentment I think and I probably won't get through more than this one point But I think this is the most important point. This is the take-home message then, if that was the case. The take-home message is Paul primarily found contentment because he trusted in the providence of God. He trusted in the providence of God. He trusted in God's providential care. And that's very, very important. Paul said, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Paul was content to trust God to enable him in his daily ministry and to provide for all his needs. For all his needs. A bit of background is needed here because he's referring to the church in Philippi, which he founded in Acts 16. And if you're familiar with Acts 16, you know that at that time he established that that first church and uh, he and his companions visited And uh, there, a businesswoman named Lydia, a seller of uh, purple fabrics 300 miles from home. Uh, God opened her heart when he preached the word to her, and she was saved. And and the conversion was a a marvelous conversion, and the church blossomed. But during the early days of the church, Paul cast out a spirit of divination in a slave girl there. You remember that? And the girl's owners were upset over that because they lost some income because of the way she did fortune-telling. And uh, they had him beaten and thrown in prison, locked in stocks. You Remember that? But instead of complaining about his misery, as some of us might do, and maybe I would be one of them, instead of being miserable in the situation in which he found himself, Paul and Silas praised God. And through thanksgiving and prayer at midnight uh, uh, acts, records, they were singing and praying, even in the midst of that great trial. And God responded in the most marvelous way. He shook the, do you remember that? He shook the foundations of the prison and he shook it violently, and then all the doors sprang open, and the chains fell off those prisoners, and uh, the shackles fell off them. And uh, this led to the salvation even of the jailer and and the jailer's entire household. Do you remember that? And uh, as, the, as the church at Philippi grew, it evidently uh, helped fund Paul for further missionary work, and that's what Paul was talking about. They sent uh, aid at the beginning, and for some reason it didn't last. We don't know why, but uh, he rejoiced, he said, that the Lord greatly uh, blessed him. Uh, uh, that, and now at last you have received, revived your concern for me, he said. Now at last you have revived your concern for me. Pardon me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. That's the pastor's heart. That's his heart. The point is that Paul had a, had a patient confidence in God's sovereign providence. He was content to do without and wait on the Lord's timing. He was short of funds from time to time, but he said, no, I've got enough. And, but he was pleased and he was kind. And he said that, that uh, he was glad that they had been revived again in their giving. And so he was confident in God's sovereign providence. He trusted in the sovereign work of God. He didn't resort to panic or manipulation, as some of us might do. Those things are never called for. Paul was certain that in due time, God would order the circumstances so that his needs would be met. And that's important. See, this is important. Until we truly learn that God is sovereign. God is sovereign over everything until we truly er, uh, learn that that God orders everything for his own holy purpose and the ultimate good of those who who love him, uh, we can never have that, that contentment. Until we know that, we'll be full of discontent. How many of you are like me, and sometimes I think I've got it all together? I've often told Joan there was one time when I can remember saying to her, I feel comfortable in my own skin. Can you imagine anybody being so bold as to say, even to your own wife, that I'm pretty comfortable in my own skin? What is that saying? That's saying that there's a lot of I in me. I felt good about who I was. Anytime we begin to think it's okay, things are pretty good the way things are going right now, too often there's too many eyes in that, and we're tied up in ourselves. But Paul never got that way. He was never that comfortable in his own skin that he was doing anything on his own. It was always through Christ. It was always through Christ. And and so we must see that divine provision is important, and it's only going to come from God. It's only going to come from God as Paul saw it coming from God. We'll never have content, real contentment, unless we give up ourselves, throw ourselves into Christ, and let Christ, who has sown himself into us through the power of his Holy Spirit, enable us to be the servants he can use in that way. A synonym for God's providence is divine provision, divine provision. But that even seems to be an inadequate label for this complex theological truth. Providence is how God orchestrates everything to accomplish his will. He orchestrates everything to accomplish his will. Everything that is happening around you and in you and through you, among you as a church, is God orchestrating everything to accomplish his will. God can act in two ways, really, in the world, by a miracle and by providence. Of course, from a spiritual perspective, it matters little how God accomplishes his unusual feats. We don't even have to name them. We just have to know God's doing it. But whether by miracle or special providence, he nevertheless deserves the praise. Whether by special providence or miracle, he gets the praise. Always give God the glory. A miracle is a natural law. Uh, A natural law is never set aside. It's, It's something we can't describe. A special providence is a natural law, a natural law is not set aside. God works through nature. In special providence, God divinely prearranges nature sometimes, or God indirectly is active in the world. But under special providence, you'll see him often divinely prearrange nature. We have examples of that in Jonah where the, the storm, the, Jonah, the prophet on his way to Nineveh uh, ran away and God used a storm. God used a storm that he stirred up to such a degree that the, 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 the shipman had to throw his prophet overboard, had to do it. He, uh, he, he, uh, he prearranged nature so that it became so great that, the, that they had to throw him over and a great fish. He had to find a great fish who would bring him along. A fish big enough in whom, he, in whom he could dwell for three days and three nights. And then what to do? There had to be a time when he spit him up on the beach. And that was God's special providence. God divinely prearranging nature. And God works in mysterious ways, and we don't always see everything he's doing. But we have to understand that God orchestrates everything around us, and we have to be content in that. Contentment. Contentment comes from learning that God is sovereign, not only by supernatural intervention, but also by natural orchestration. He does it in such ways that, he, that he, uh, his desired effect or outcome is achieved. It's always achieved. An example of this, if we stay in Jonah, he sent a plant. Do you remember he sent a plant to shade Jonah? He did it just to give him shade, to provide the, his prophet comfort. And he sent a worm the next day to destroy and even to test him. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, preached to Nineveh, though. His will was done. God's will was carried out. That is his special providence. That's God seeing that, orchestrating everything just for his purpose. Everything that happens. We, we like to take so, if you're like me, you kind of like to take everything into your own hands and know when you're going to do everything, how you're going to do it. And uh, God wants you to do that, but he wants you to trust him as you're doing it. It's, it's complex what God is doing, but God is doing it, and we must remember that. Paul was content because he had confidence in the providence of God. That confidence, however, never led him to be fatalistic. He never said, I don't care. We don't need I don't cares. We need men, bold men and women who will trust God and follow God. Uh, Paul never said that, nor w- would he think I don't, it doesn't matter what I do. Paul always knew it mattered what he did. He knew his spiritual gifts and his service, served him. He was called of God and he extended himself fully, endured fully to fulfill that call. The example of Paul's life throughout the New Testament is this. This is what he would say to you and to me if he was here today, I think. Work as hard as you can doing the will of God and be content that God is in in control of the results. We give everything we have, but know that God will work in and through you through his enablement to carry out the results that he intends. And that's important. That's important. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that contentment is one of the most important things we can strive for if we're ever going to overcome worry and anxiety. It's not an easy thing to do. In the little bit of time that I've ministered to people in my life, I've seen that people are just like me Sometimes we think we have control of our lives. Sometimes we think that we've given everything up and we're very content. But even then, all of a sudden it flees. And there we are again, lying awake at night and wondering how we're going to get everything done tomorrow or how we're going to do it in such a way that we'll do it properly and uh, maybe even get the glory. The one thing that steals our contentment besides not trusting God fully, not trusting his providential hand upon everything fully, is is, uh, the trying times of circumstances. We crumble and lose our sense of satisfaction and peace uh, when we allow circumstances to victimize us. And circumstances glare at us so boldly that we can't overcome them. And then we're stuck, we're right back into the trap of running on a windmill. I've learned to be content, Paul said, in whatever circumstance I am, in, 11, in chapter, verse 11 of chapter 4. And he really meant it. I've already said to you, you, we can understand what Paul meant when he said that, because we know what he meant when he said whatever circumstances. Because we know how he lived. Because in the very next verse, he expands it enough to remember all the things he did. He said, I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry and uh, of of having abundance and suffering need. Paul had it all. Paul knew it all. It's impossible for us then, as Christians, you and I as Christians, anyone here who's a believer, to learn to be content in facing any situation in life. And we don't have to wait for heaven for that to happen. So many times we're thinking, well, when I get to glory, and that's going to be a beautiful time, when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We'll all say Jesus, and we'll sing and dance the victory. But no, we can have at least contentment while we're here on earth and wait. Paul said this, he said, set your mind. We have to have our mind on those spiritual things, however. And he said, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. In addition, he said, our light and momentary troubles are, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we have to realize the difference between these earthly views and what is in heaven. And then he went on and he says, so fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. That's in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Paul endured many horrific circumstances, but through them all, he learned to trust in Jesus. And we need to learn and trust in Jesus. You know, Paul, you know all how he suffered, don't you? You remember in 2 Corinthians all those things, that he's, how, the way he suffered? My, it makes me feel guilty. I've got it made. I've got such an easy life. I've got such a lovely wife and family. I've had so much. I've never suffered. Well, you know what? I was blessed with a gold spoon in my mouth. I was born in Saskatchewan. How many people can say that? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. But you know what? You know what? I want to close by by saying the best way to learn contentment is the way Paul learned contentment. We learn contentment best when we we walk in the valley of the shadow of death. When we come to a crucial point in life. or when When we can't resolve our problems. Or when we can't eliminate conflict. When we can't fix our marriage relationships. When we can't do anything about the children. Or when we can't change our work environment. Or when we're unable to fight the disease destroying our body. This is when most of us, if not all, turn to God and find the strength to get through the situation. And it's only then that we have to realize that God wants to orchestrate his will in his way for his glory through these circumstances it's only then it's only then trusting in Jesus persevering in faith leaving results to God there is a one qualifier if you've been living a life in sin and you are now in a deep dark hole where sin has led you I don't think we're to expect the Lord to step in with a dazzling display of power and make us feel content. That won't happen. Do you think that? Do you think that way? No, that's wrong. That's wrong thinking. What is more apt to happen is that God is apt to add chastening to the pain that your circumstances have naturally produced. And in that chastening, he wants you to realize that you're separated from him and need his comfort, need his grace, need his mercy, need his love. And he's waiting for you to return in the fullness of his embrace. Don't forget you must trust him and his divine providence. If you're in sin and you want contentment, it starts with confession, ends with grace and glory and a great benefit, which only God can bring. I'll say it one more time. I'm ending with this. An old preacher once told a story about a man who lost his dog. He lost it in the back country somewhere and put an ad in the paper. It went something like this, just a list. Lost dog. Reward offered. A mixed breed, limps due to automobile accident, not in great condition, blind in one eye, large patches of fur missing due to being maimed, does not hear well, answers to the name of lucky. Now, we know there's no really such thing as luck. Right? Not in my Bible, anyway. Unbelievers would have no problem with calling it luck, but let me say this. We were spiritually maimed until Christ cleansed and healed us, forgave us of our sins. And even after being saved for a while, some of, sometimes we, we believers are like that old dog. Beaten up and lost in worry and anxiety. Missing all the blessings that should be ours. We need not even think about the silly thing as luck, but we can have contentment if we're saved by Christ, by faith alone, by grace alone. And we need to trust in his divine providence. We need... not Gravel and the dirt. Providence is what God orchestrating everything to accomplish His will. God orchestrating, and He will. Do you believe? Do you believe that? If we don't serve a God who's like that, we have no hope. But if we serve and trust a God like that, really trust a God like that, we can have contentment. And if we have contentment, we won't worry. We won't be full of anxiety. Don't let circumstances steal your contentment. Let circumstances remind you, remind you of your need to trust in God. There isn't anyone here today that doesn't have a difficult load to carry, some kind of a burden that they wish they could unload. Unless you're one who is living, trusting God, that in his orchestrating his divine will in your life, you've been trusting him. If you have, and you have contentment, glory, glory, glory. You sleep good at night, and you have lots of friends, and your relationship with Christ is beautiful. But if you're not one of those, Would you trust Christ right now? Would you trust him right now? Would you just say, God, I've known you for a long time as my savior, but I worry and I'm anxious. I want you to take control of everything I do. I'm going to trust you. I know you're in control. He can't take control. He's doing it already. I'm going to let you, and I'm not going to worry anymore. I'm going to do everything I can do with the giftedness you've given me and the energy you've given me but I'm trusting you to orchestrate everything that is happening in my life for your end your glory let's pray Father we love you and we thank you for our salvation so sweet we thank you for your Holy Spirit who indwells us, encourages us strengthens us, gifts us Now, Lord, we pray that you'd open our hearts that we might understand that you want to just be trusted with your sovereign grace. It's your sovereign grace that has saved us. Now it's your sovereign grace that we're committing now to follow. And so, Lord, as you orchestrate the happenings in our life, we're going to work hard but continue to trust you as you're working. Thank you, dear Jesus. We thank you in the precious, precious name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.